Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government online event asking whether England needs a national transport strategy. Scotland has one, Wales has one, England has bus back better and the Williams Shapps plan for rail and a plethora of investment strategies. But is that enough to meet the plans in the Conservatives 2019 manifesto, let alone deal with the strains that have come from the pressure of Brexit, the pandemic, and as the eyes of the world are on Glasgow, uh, net zero? And is England even the right unit to think about this? Should we be talking about the UK? Should we be talking about England's regions? Or should we be talking about travel to work areas or something different? Lots of questions there. My name's Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government, and we're really pleased to be bringing you this event in partnership with Costain, the infrastructure consultancy uh, organisation. And we have a fantastic panel to talk about it today. Uh, Andrew Adonis, Lord Adonis, was Secretary of State for Transport, Head of the National Infrastructure Commission, Minister for Transport, Head of the Number 10 Policy Unit, many other things besides, so has the perfect CV for um, talking about those questions today. Someone else with the perfect CV is Bridget Rosewell, who is a Commissioner at the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, she's Chair of the Independent Review into Planning Appeal Inquiries, huge experience in policy, investment, economics around uh, transport and other decision making on infrastructure. Sue Kershaw is Managing Director of Transport at Costain. Uh, she's worked on everything from the Olympics, where she was responsible for rail and road transport and uh, uh, project management, to the Mayor of London's Infrastructure Advisory Panel. Um, she also became the first uh, female president of the Association for Project Management in 2019. Uh, and last but not least, Martin Tugwell. Chief Executive at Transport for the North. Um, he's worked all over the UK and England from south to north and before joining Transport for the North uh, was Director uh, for England's Economic Heartland, a subnational transport body representing a large chunk of England. So we've got a brilliant panel. I'm also uh, sure you're going to be a brilliant audience because you're going to ask some fantastic um, questions. Do ask questions uh, from uh, the start in uh, the box that you can see uh, is there. Say if you can who you are, where you're from, and also um, use the sort of thumbs up uh, uh, um, uh, uh, icon to to rate and uprate questions. That makes them more likely to come up the uh, the feed that we can see, and so more likely that they'll be asked if you're interested in them. Um, if you're uh, uh, on Twitter, um, use hashtag IFG Transport for the events today. We're really keen to get your thoughts that way uh, as well. So um, uh, without uh, any further ado, um, we'll start with um, Lord Adonis. Um, Andrew, why has it been so hard to introduce a national transport strategy in England? Nice simple question for you to kick off. Uh, well, th first of all, just to say it's great to be with you and in such a star-studded uh, cast as well. And uh, you didn't mention uh, the most important part of my CV, which is that I was a direct was director of the Institute for Government uh, <laughs> 10 years ago, which is uh, one of the uh, best jobs in the country. Declare and, interest. <laughs> and, and, and the work that you and others, Alex, do in highlighting these governance issues, because they're essentially, uh, they're obviously, they've got a massive policy dimension, but underlying them is a governance issue. How do you go about actually uh, planning policy and um, and generating uh, momentum, partnership and so on in a, a country as complex as ours. And you're absolutely right to be drawing attention to them. On um, 
Uh, should there be a national transport strategy, which is the subject of the seminar? Uh, yes. And I'm not as gloomy as uh, I think some people may be about the absence of one, because I've always regarded as a, uh, uh, as an absolutely cardinal rule of public policy that uh, you should engage in R&D. And R&D in public policy is rob and duplicate. The art of good public policy is to find somebody who does something well somewhere uh, uh, across the world. Uh, make a proper judgment that they are doing it well, don't get that wrong, because often people can identify things wrongly that are, are working well, but once you judge that it is working well, you then just copy it. And in my experience of public policy, the more literally you copy it, uh, making whatever allowances you need to for cultural or, um, uh, or, uh, or, or national or local norms, the more successful you're likely to be, provided the model that you start on in the first place is, is workable. And all of the things which uh, I've done in government, uh, which have been uh, most successful as I look back on them, have been essentially being very bold in applying R&D. That's true of all the education reforms I did, which were all based on successful existing models elsewhere, maybe the most successful, one of the most successful being the Academy's programme based very much on international models, uh, Teach uh, First, which was based on Teach for America, and I had a massive battle with the civil service because I wanted to keep it literal. I didn't want to make fundamental changes that they wanted to do to fit it into the pre-existing teacher training system in um, in England. And the same is true of HS2, which was a straightforward copy, essentially, of the Japanese Shinkansen as, as a model. And all of the mistakes that have been made in HS2 uh, in the last 10 years have been have come from departing from uh, that model. Now, the model in terms of transport uh, strategic planning, which we have, which really works, which we should be copying relentlessly, is London. We don't even need, in this particular case, to look internationally. London's record in the last um, uh, 25 years, really, since uh, the late 19, uh, uh, 1990s, the combination of New Labour plus the creation of the Mayoralty of London, uh, and I'm making a non-party point because it's true of all of the successive holders of that office of mayor, including the present prime minister, has been one of unmitigated success. It has been a transformation in the quality of public and private uh, transport planning and delivery in London. In the 1990s, London was an international basket case for failure. You know, I mean, you used to have to um, consult a timetable to work out when the next Northern Line was going to appear and it, it might not appear then and it was as likely as not the train would be taken out of service because it was 35 years old and not working. Uh, well, I mean, all the statistics uh, speak for themselves on London. Um, uh, massive investment, almost all of it highly productive. Uh, Crossrail about to open, uh, thanks to consistent planning over three mayors, um, three governments over the course of the last uh, 20 years, a doubling of investment in the tube, transformation in um, in quality there, the um, uh, the uh, uh, the application of technology to transport L London is world leading, genuinely world leading. I mean, this government spends a lot of time talking about world class and world leading, but actually Oyster and contactless are genuinely world leading. There is no other public transport system in the world which is as far advanced in the, in the application of contactless technology as as, uh, as London. I could go on and on through it, including uh, the introduction of a congestion zone, the only part of the country where we really apply road pricing, which is 
a, a model of policy which people have been going on and on about as being necessary for a country as congested as ours for decades and it's actually only really happening in a in a simplified form and nonetheless happening in London. What needs to happen elsewhere is simply to apply the lessons of London and it's not happening unfortunately. There was a fitful attempt in the establishment of the National Infrastructure Commission and I'm delighted that Bridget's uh, with us because she was one of my fellow founding commissioners. There was an equally fitful attempt in the setting up of Transport for the North and I'm glad we've got Martin with us because he's doing great work there. But these are, are really pale imitations of what's going on in London at the moment. And if you want to understand how pale the imitations are, just look at the complete catastrophe of the planning of of, uh, of, of transport in the Midlands and the North at the moment, despite the setting up of the National Infrastructure Commission and Transport for the North. Uh, we're still um, uh, after a decade of trying to get an integrated strategic plan for transport to the Midlands and North, there still isn't one. Uh, it's been impossible to get the various agencies to come together in a single plan. The Treasury keeps delaying it. This thing called the Integrated Rail Plan for the North has been due for publication every month for the last two years and still hasn't appeared. It's common knowledge. There's a massive argument going on between the Treasury on the one hand and the various policymakers in the North on the other. Half of HS2 is about to be cancelled, despite the fact that one of the first reports of the National Infrastructure Commission was that it should be built in its entirety to Manchester and Leeds. And that was the plan that was agreed uh, by Parliament after 2010 and, and, and. So the way I look at it is very simple. We've got one model that really works, London. We've got and that is a combination of really serious regional planning with significant national dimension to it too. Um, I'm not sufficiently familiar with Scotland to be able to uh, judge whether it's been a success. For my engagement with Scotland, it's definitely more successful transport planning in Scotland than it was uh, pre-devolution. Um, and there are things, a number of things you could point to, like um, the uh, Glasgow Edinburgh electrification and, and so on, which have clearly been a result of that longer term planning. So I'm not sure whether it is it's, it's success, but I think we can definitely say that transport planning for most of the Midlands and the North, most of it has been poor to catastrophic. There's partial exceptions in the cities of of uh, uh, of um, Birmingham and 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 uh, Manchester due to strong and very effective leadership by Manchester City Council over many decades, which has led to the metro system and more recently with the really outstandingly good metro mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, but for whom, by the way, HS2 almost certainly would have been cancelled two years ago, despite all of the strategic planning which had been done in the previous um, in the previous decade. But leaving those exceptions apart, we haven't even begun properly to implement the successful model of, of London across the rest of England. And that, I think, uh, should be the agenda for serious uh, transport planners and people who are seriously committed to levelling up. It's brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. It's a, a great start. And uh, yeah, you, you got the levelling up in just before I was, uh, uh, I, I could, it sound, I was, was going to say, it sounds, sounds an awful lot like levelling up or at least one particular definition of uh, levelling up. And we'll come back to uh, a number of those questions, both generally in a minute and, and in particular with, with Martin. Um, before we do, though, I was going to ask um, Bridget, we're, um, you know, I'm getting pings on my phone every uh, 20 minutes with the latest updates from the, the COP26 in, uh, in Glasgow. The eyes of the world are, uh, are on um, Scotland at the moment. Um, uh, what does England transport, transport in England need to do to um, build in net zero into the, the infrastructure decisions uh, and policy decisions that, that, uh, that are being made at the moment? Bridget. 
fundamentally, the answer to that question has to be about roads. Because whatever you do with rail, and even if it is a low carbon alternative, it's still a very much smaller proportion of, of all the transport trips that are done, Depend, depending on which base you use, whether you include walking and cycling and da da da. But it's no more, rail is no more than 7% of all trips. Uh, and so there's a real challenge, I think, on net zero as to how you think about roads and, and what you, how you make them efficient and effective, but the users of them efficient and effective. And that is the really big challenge and that, that we're really working on. We're, we're, um, in the Infrastructure Commission, we came out early with Charge Up Britain as a campaign to uh, try and make sure that we can overcome range anxiety and put in place an effective electric vehicle charging network. We're still not there. Uh, and actually, for all the transport planning that you can do, we can have beautiful plans. We can create wonderful strategies, but unless we have a means of implementing them, we are wasting our time on the uh, the governance of how we do the planning. We've got to sort out the governance of how we do delivery. And I've got really two things that I'd like to talk about there. One is that EV charging network, and, and that is a network, and therefore it requires both policy and implementation push behind it from central government because it's it's that national system and it needs to be it needs to be universal and indeed it needs to be wider than England. Uh, secondly, the bit the, the elephant in this particular room that hasn't yet really been addressed is the capacity of the electrical network to support that charging system. Um, there are very various pieces of technical analysis which suggests that using batteries as part of grid balancing and load balancing within the grid, the batteries that are in the cars, actually we can make these things go up together. But I have a horrible feeling, well, I'm, I'm convinced that there will be some lumpiness along that road and lumpiness will mean power cuts. So we need a mechanism by which we're going to really decarbonise transport. The, uh, the road transport, and that includes incidentally, not just people people taking their children to school, going on to work, uh, doing the shopping and coming back. All the, the mixed trips, which have to, I have to say are mostly done by women and which are ignored by much of the transport models and the transport network planners. And those are really important to people's quality of life. We have to find a way of doing those, both in terms of the vehicles and also in terms of the network and its capacity. Of course, the other part of that is to shift trips to more sustainable modes such as rail, but it won't work for all trips. I'm here, uh, well, it looks like I'm in two carton gardens, but I'm not. I'm actually in Lincolnshire um, and it is, it, I'm close to a mainline train station, but there's certainly no good way of getting to it except by leaping into a vehicle. Uh, and for many of the people around me, none of their trips would be possible possibly by bus, but not often, because even the buses are going to be too big uh, in terms of capacity to be effective mo modes of transport, uh, efficient modes of transport, cost efficient modes of transport for most of the trips that people are making. So we can still work on better rail systems, better intercity systems, and that's an economic benefit, incidentally, for productivity, for jobs, for the capacity of cities to operate. Um, but they're not going to solve the problem for most people. So that is important. And it is also important within cities to encourage cycling and walking and so on. Again, not going to work for towns very easily, not going to work, work in rural areas, but it can certainly work in London, but also in Manchester, in Leeds, in Newcastle, in Sheffield, 
Uh, in Oxford and Cambridge, obviously, they also they already cycle everywhere. Um, and, and suddenly and dangerous it can be on occasion. So there's still there's still a way of thinking about this at the right level of geography. And so for me, the other part of this, and it comes back to some of the things Andrew was saying, uh, it's about how you pull the modes together. And the Department for Transport has not been very good at that because it has tends to operate on rail and then there's road and then they'll be walking and cycling. Whereas it's in London, as, as Andrew has said, but equally in other regions where you can pull the modes together into thinking about how you, you get the, the thinking about the trips at the right level of the geographies. And so the final point I'd like to make is you have to think about it from users point of view. And we're very used in transport planning. It's done by engineers, right? It's done by transport planners. They're a specialist breed. They think about time savings. They think about running um, so much better to run a rail system without any passengers. It works brilliantly if you don't have any people on it. Uh, so we've got to get away from thinking about transport as being about engineers, about the design of the road. And it's got to get in much more into thinking about the um, it's the users of that transport system. Why do they use it? Why why are they there? What are they trying to do? Uh, and 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 how does that respond to their quality of life? If we do that, actually, I think we can move to a zero a zero carbon system more efficiently and more effectively than we are currently doing. Brilliant. Thanks, Bridget. I'm going to I'm actually going to slightly disrupt our usual format to this and take advantage of the fact that the fact you were talking about this and that there's a popular question from Rebecca Selick that links precisely to what you were saying about pulling the modes together and uh, the spatial uh, location of this. But how can how, how can we hope to slash uh, transport's contribution to our carbon footprint without an island wide UK transport strategy? So do you think do you think net zero demands a, a, a UK wide transport strategy or at least an England wide transport strategy? Just briefly, because we'll come back to this in a in a moment. I think that the real risk of thinking that it does is that you go on thinking about producing a strategy and you don't actually get on with anything on the ground in time. So that is my, uh, you know, I've integrated road transport strategies have been things that people have talked about all my career. And they have been a reason for doing nothing except thinking about the strategy. I'd rather do things than have a strategy. So good advice. Thank you, Bridget. We'll come back to that. Um, uh, Sue, uh, mo moving on to you, I'll, I'll ask you a, a nice simple question about the nature of time um, to uh, uh, kick things off. But uh, how, um, and given your experience, how uh, how can we best anticipate the needs of transport and then build them? So sort of taking Bridget's challenge there of just, you know, for goodness sake, get on and, and do stuff. Um, but how can you, uh, how can you, uh, in a meaningful way, throw yourself forward to, to the, the transport demands of the future and then get on and, and, and build what needs to be built? So, Yeah, really, really good question. And Bridget, a lot of what you said resonated with me because transport cannot be seen in isolation. Transport is about people. People live in houses. People need facilities. Whole environments and communities need to grow and flourish. So I think the biggest mistake we've made to date is looking at transport in isolation and looking at by sector in even more isolation. So what they've done in the Scottish strategy is actually link their transport thinking with economic growth, with the climate change and, and also with what's happening around that whole economy. So yes, Scotland is uh, smaller geographically than, than England, but they've done that thinking, which is almost identical to the thinking that was done with the London mayor, linking the strat spatial strategy, the economic strategy, and the transport strategy. 
So I think to anticipate the needs of transport, you have to anticipate the needs of people. And the opportunity we have right now, post-Brexit and post-COVID, is an opportunity that we've never had before. We've always kind of reshaped things, redone things, thought about things in very much the same way, got the modelers working away, uh, demand versus capacity, but that has all changed out of all recognition, like our ways of working have all changed out of recognition. So I think we need to really think by community and not do a grand plan, because grand plans rarely, well, they usually get out of date before they're delivered, but look locally, look locally at the sub-national transport bodies, look locally at the mayoral issues. Let's make some real successes happen that fit the need of business, the people and the community. And then let's replicate that across the country. And each one will have different things that work for it. When I worked on the Olympics, we did a load of research around the world of what would a good transport strategy for the Olympics look like. And we had some really good lessons learned, failures from Atlanta, for example, and uh, Beijing, where things are very much different and very much organised from the top. But there was no one size fits all. We found that really early, especially with somewhere like London that has very, very special topography. So I think we need to talk to the communities. We need to talk to the government clients about what they're trying to achieve with the funding they're giving, because is it really big capital projects now? The capacity and the demand is down, the capacity is there. Is it more looking at the asset management and clever, smart asset management? And that comes into the climate change issue as well. You know, how can we make sure those railway embankments are safe? Well, we can monitor them remotely with drones, for example. We could never do that before. You know, have a think about what people actually want and what's going to be used and what's going to be needed. I think it's truly important. So we need to look ahead with a, with a clean sheet of paper. We need to be proactive, whether we're planners, politicians or engineers. We need to get involved to make it happen. We need to check the trends we're seeing now are going to be long term or short term. And I think that's a really interesting thing and very, very difficult to do. Um, and we need to look at really the re-leveling agenda. What does that truly look like? And how does this nirvana of integrated transport happen? We can't do integrated transport across the whole of the UK at one time. It has to be specific elements, as I said, that join up, sort of connecting the dots, if you like. And I think for funding as well, let's look to the banks. At the moment, they are offering huge amounts of money, private finance for the ESG agenda. Let's grab that. It's great for the banks. It's going to be great for us and great for the communities we're working in. So we've got to get better at anticipating what we want, but we don't necessarily have to build it. We can build something, make something better that's already built, and that will help with the whole re-leveling. Brilliant, thanks. So strong theme here about not getting too carried away with uh, grand plans and grand strategies, but um, uh, uh, but focusing on uh, the most uh, urgent and most uh, sort of uh, important uh, and getting on and doing it. So Martin, picking up on that theme that Bridget Sue and uh, Andrew were saying, um, you've got a perspective across England. Um, uh, how uh, how do we uh, meaningfully fit together the uh, national, the local, um, uh, the regional um, uh, plans in a way that actually works and, and makes makes lives better for people? Um, well, Alex, I was going to start off by just kind of reflecting on a comment that uh, Andrew made in his uh, opening comments. And of course, uh, there has been much to celebrate in terms of what's been done in London. Of course, one thing that London has, which the English regions don't have, is financial devolution. So uh, the English regions are having to compete 
in a process where the rules are set by uh, Whitehall. And of course, we don't necessarily always know what those rules are. But let me just come back to the sort of the key question, which is, do we need a national transport strategy? Yes. Um, and the subnational transport bodies are a key part of that. And indeed, I've just to start off by reflecting that if you've got the seven um, subnational transport bodies um, and you've got TFL and you've got a representative from the three devolved administrations, that's 11 people around the table with government. And if we can't uh, focus on some of the key issues challenging the transport sector with 12 people around the table, then there's not much hope for us. I personally think it would be a very easy and very powerful way of actually moving this thing forward. The other thing I'd say before we go too far into national transport strategy is it's not about a long list of projects. I think as a profession, and both Sue and Bridget have touched on this, as a profession, we get obsessed by identifying um, the key projects. And there will be some, and, and Andrew touched on it, some truly national projects which need to be led and promoted by um, national government and then uh, through the the national transport strategy we need to understand what uh, their opportunities they create within the regions but our national transport strategy needs to be focused on outcomes the very point that sue is making it needs to be focused on what are we trying to achieve so rather than um uh, as engineers designing a, a transport scheme and thinking about how do we mitigate the environmental impact we should be saying this is where we need to get to in 30 years we need to do this in our transport investments to achieve that outcome so outcomes becomes for me the really key driver here as in does I think the national transport strategy is the opportunity to deal with some of those stickier issues. Um, so we know that there's a challenge to decarbonise the transport system. We know there's a challenge to actually decarbonise it in a way that works for all, whether you're in the rural community or whether you're in a city centre. We also know there's a role or there's a challenge in terms of the business models that apply to a roads, rail and buses. And yet we've seen in the, own, uh, the government's transport decarbonisation plan an acknowledgement that the relative cost of these modes of travel have been going in exactly the wrong way. If nothing else, we should be using a national transport strategy to get into some of those really key issues which set the tone within which then the regions can, uh, can work. And the reason I say the STBs are ideally placed, look at the, 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 the investment that has been made in terms of developing our skills and expertise. I have access to tools and analysis uh, tools within TFN, which allow me, I've got probably one of the best um, regional transport models, uh, sorry, regional rail models and regional road models, and we're combining them together to provide uh, a truly integrated transport model. And by the way, we've got an access to a regional land use model. So the benefits of uh, investing, for example, in a new station in Bradford, which would then have an uplift in land value. We can measure that. We've got the tools, we've got the knowledge, we've got the experience to be able to do that. And of course, by doing it through TFN, you're doing it in an environment where you have political engagement across the North, being able to take those uh, those decisions. When I, when I think about my career, Alex, over the last 20 years, this is my third incarnation of a regional level of, uh, or either working with or working for uh, regional uh, level of, of work. And, and that tells me something, that we know it's an important part of the, the system that's missing. Um, we know that it works for significant infrastructure, like Northern Powerhouse Rail, where you need to have those choices. And actually building on uh, Bridget's point, people don't realise actually we're increasingly centres of excellence. So my team has got experience of working on strategic cases, business cases, of challenging costs, 
of driving down. So we focus on the outcome rather than uh, gold plating or platinum plating. Um, we're also sources of, of where you can deal with issues of common concern, common cause. So it was interesting in the um, transport decarbonisation plan, the key role that STBs have in terms of helping with decarbonisation. So we're leading some work on EV infrastructure. Uh, that's important because it means you have one conversation with the energy supply companies who operate at a scale beyond an individual local authority. You're also able to join up in common cause, the thinking between the various modes of transport. But more than that, increasingly, you know, the STBs are saying, if you want to realize the potential of the transport system, you've got to have the ubiquitous digital connectivity and you've got to have the planet power and energy supplies. So I've in my previous role, have already started using the national infrastructure systems model because you need to have that joined up thinking. And so, I think, and it's a very personal view, but I think we should start to talk in terms of subnational infrastructure bodies as a sort of an evolution of STBs, as I think that's a way forward. Fundamentally, the STBs are about providing one voice uh, for the region. I, I said I've been involved in various incarnations. Um, I was around at the time, in fact, we were in the, at the time I was working in the Southeast and we were the pilot for regional funding advice. And guess what? We were actually able at a regional level to join thinking on transport, with economic development, with housing. Government was necessarily, well, civil servants perhaps more rather than government were perhaps a little bit uh, cautious about whether regional politicians would actually come together and make difficult decisions. And you know what? They did and they did it consistently and we had a programme and we actually got on and delivered things. Now, more recently, We've set out our offer to government in what we call the Northern Transport Charter, a way of actually showing how by focusing on the user, by having the investment in the pipeline to the point where you're actually ready to deliver, and by doing it within a financial framework, you can actually make some real progress on delivering change. And for us, that means delivering the new north. So I think there's an opportunity here, and I think the way we can build upon it is by using a national transport strategy to act as a bit of a catalyst. Brilliant. Thanks. Um, thanks, Martin. Uh, and uh, you know, clear sort of uh, pointers for what levelling up might um, uh, might mean for you and for uh, the north of uh, England. I mean, uh, Bridget, what would you think about levelling up? Um, what would you pick out uh, uh, if, if, if you could define levelling up in a sort of infrastructure and transport um, context? How would you define it and, and how would you prioritise uh, the different aspects of it? Um, I suppose it comes down to money, actually. And money and power. So all of the things that we've uh, talked about at the Infrastructure Commission, both before levelling up was a, a term of art and since we've just uh, recently published a work on towns, for example. But previously, after the first national infrastructure assessment, we did a lot of work with cities and, and all of that was really it, it, a lot of it came down to giving subnational bodies of one kind and another. And I absolutely agree with what Martin is saying here. Um, is to, to come in and offer the right and the responsibility for making your own plans and bringing together your own people to come to, to pull all that together. And you can't do it at a national level. You can't do all of that at a national level. A, places are all different. We, we looked for a we looked for a, a, a typology of towns, for example, you know, this town would be like, you know, this group of towns, that group of towns. 
And there are too many dimensions. Everywhere is actually different and their differences are really important, in fact, to be maintained. So allowing the people who were involved in those places really to drive themselves, really to step up to the plate. And for that, it means both it needs rights and responsibilities. It means access to finance, access to the funding, but also the responsibility for that funding. Otherwise, we go back into the world that is, you know, for the last 50 years or so, it's all about you know, putting putting your hand out and saying to Treasury, please, can I have some? And the and, and getting more and more very specific funds, a bit of fun for this and you compete for this or you compete for that, or you compete for the other thing. There are 17 different funds that people could compete for. They don't fit together. They're all for particular purposes. And unless we get away from all of that detailed micromanagement from the centre, we can't have a national strategy because we, what we've actually got is just national micromanagement. And that is not a strategy. So devolution is actually, uh, and I think Mark, when Martin said, put all the subnational bodies together in one place and let them fight it out what a national uh, system might look like, that would be brilliant. Treasury won't let that happen. So when we did the real needs assessment, I'll stop banging on in a moment. When we did the real needs assessment, uh, and Andrew was incredibly cross with me because we didn't uh, support, we couldn't support within the budget doing the whole of HS2. So what we said was with, within those budgetary constraints, let's get on with the first stages while we kind of still do an adaptive approach and get, and get the next bit sorted out. But unless you give that responsibility and the right to say what it is that you need for your area and your region, and that's not regional planning, incidentally, because that is that you know that, that those regions were sort of sort of fake at the same time. Those regions have to emerge themselves. London sort of does, you know, it's the area inside the M25 pretty much. Even then, and I was there at the beginning of, of um, uh, the GLA and working on producing those plans which brought transport and the economy together. And it took quite a while. It took a while to get that iteration um, to happen. So it's not it's not a quick fix. That will be my final thought on that matter. None, none of this is a quick fix. Yeah, thanks, Bridget. And um, uh, Andrew, bringing it, I, I was anyway going to bring up some of the points that Bridget made about sort of about institutions and governance. You mentioned governance uh, earlier on as well. Do you think we've do, do you think we've got governance and institutions right in the UK and in England? Is the Department for Transport fit for purpose? Uh, does, do we use evidence in the in, in, in the right way? Um, uh, how would you, if, if you could uh, redesign uh, the um, uh, transport decision-making uh, architecture in, in England, uh, how would you do it, Andrew? Well, lots of interesting themes have come out. I think I was very interested in what Martin said about how the 12, if you take the 12 sub, regional sub-national sub bodies, essentially regionally based transport bodies that there are at the moment in England and brought them together in some systematic way with the Treasury and the Department of Transport and some of the national agencies, maybe Network Rail, you know, which is now the guiding force between Great British Railways and so on, maybe the, the highway, Highways England as well. You've got your, um, uh, your as it were, college from which you can create a national transport plan. It'd be very interesting to ask Martin whether those people have ever met round the table. I suspect the answer is no, that that group I've just described, I, I suspect they've never met round the table. So that would be quite a good starting point, is the answer. I, I never believed in um, 
in abolishing one institution simply to create another with the same purpose and thinking it's going to be better. That is a cardinal mistake of governance, public policy and governmental design. So the idea that abolishing the Department for Transport simply to replace it with some national transport agency doing the job of the Department for Transport, I think is a complete nonsense. The reason we set up the, the National Infrastructure Commission um, uh, when it, whenever it was now, six years ago, was because there was nobody no institutional body that was responsible at arm's length from government for recommending um, a, a national infrastructure plan. And that was its purpose. And there's been some schizophrenic comments in the course of the last 45 minutes about whether plans are a good idea or a bad idea. And I can tell you the only thing worse than having a plan is not having a plan. And yes, I'm afraid plans do need to include lists of projects. There's no other way that projects are going to be taken forward than unless they appear on a list. So there's some sort of glib phrases that lists of projects are a bad idea. Well, the only thing worse than having a list of projects is not having a list of projects. What you've got to do is have your list, get the right list is the key point, and then work with them consistently. And just a, a final remark, because I want to bring this into the real world as to where we are at the moment. Richard is completely right that I was uh, very irritated with my offspring, the National Infrastructure Commission, for its absurd reports last year, deprioritising HS2 East. It was absurd in its own terms, because the first reports of the National Infrastructure Commission itself, three years previously, was in favour of completing HS2 West and East as a, as a as a cardinal building block for national transport strategy. And the thing about a high speed rail line is it's a once in a century thing that you can't keep pulling up by the roots every four or five years and looking at it again and deciding whether or not it is or isn't a good idea. Having done the plans, which we had done, having got them over a period of about nearly a decade, looked at um, uh, coordinating properly between the various different agencies, uh, the right thing to do was to uh, was to carry and implement them. And a final point about HS2, because it's uh, I'm going to carry on banging about on about this nationally, as I see it as my duty. The idea that it's not possible as a country to build a backbone high-speed rail network between the four largest conurbations of England, being Greater London, the West Midlands, the North West, and Yorkshire particularly West Yorkshire, either it's not possible to do that and to have successful regional and local plans, including towns, is for the birds and is refuted by the experience of every other major industrial democracy apart from the United States, which have proceeded with backbone high-speed rail networks linking their major conurbations, as well as, in most cases, having rather better regional and local transport plans than we've got. So I think the assertion that Bridget's making that it's not possible to do this within a, an arbitrary funding envelope set by the Treasury, which by the way is less as a proportion of GDP invested in infrastructure than most of those other countries. The starting point for that has to be that you have to dismiss the experience of most of the industrial world and the experience of London, which has invested significantly higher than that average proportion of GDP in, in the Greater London area over the last 20 years. You have to dismiss all of those things and say that the rest of the world is wrong and that the Treasury, which is right, and the National Infrastructure Commission is right simply to be following Treasury instructions there in deprioritising half of HS2 and trying to cancel it. I'm pretty certain I know where people looking back 
on transport planning are going to come out on, on it. They're going to say that the National Infrastructure Commission was right first time round, that we were right to be planning an integrated 330-mile HS2 system, including the four largest conurbations 10 years ago, and that the dismantling of that that's happening at the moment will simply cause a situation where it has to be reassembled again over a longer period of time with fewer of the benefits. And people will look at, back at this as a, an example of, of a catastrophic failure of, of integrated national transport planning. Thanks, Andrew. Lots in that. And I'm going to come back to Bridget in a moment uh, and uh, uh, give her a right of reply on that, uh, uh, on, on, on some of those points. Martin also uh, was going to come in because there were a number of points there about the uh, sort of getting the people in the room. So I'll come to Martin and then Bridget and then Sue, you will get the first question from the audience, which we need to move on to. So Martin, um, briefly, if you could. Yeah, Alex, you were talking about what does levelling up mean? I mean, for me, fundamentally, levelling up means doing things differently. And what's better to to empower um, the the local politicians coming together in subnational bodies to be able to to shape that? Um, do you know what the uh, seven subnational transport bodies have been meeting regularly for about two to three years? We meet at a technical director level, and increasingly we meet as chief executive levels as well. And indeed, the department is uh, is meeting with us on a regular basis. Uh, we work collaboratively on issues such as freight and logistics, because if you're going to look at freight from Felixstowe, you've got to look across the other regions as well. We work together on decarbonisation. We work together on things like rural accessibility. So you've got the essence of the seven subnational transport bodies already working collaboratively, consistently together. We occasionally work with uh, London uh, and likewise with the Union Connectivity Review about to be published. I'm sure there'll be opportunities to build the strength with the, the devolved administrations as well. But I think for me, the fundamental point here, which uh, we've touched on a number of times already, is if we're looking to uh, take difficult decisions, if we're looking to do things differently, who's better placed to be able to do that than to devolve both the responsibility and the financial framework to the subnational bodies so that they actually allow that to be, uh, those choices to be made by those who understand their own particular area. Brilliant. Thanks, Martin. Uh, really interesting. Uh, Bridget, to come back on uh, what Andrew was saying and anything else. OK, I think, well, I could go on for quite a long time. I will try not to. Two key Please, points. Thank you. <laughs> Firstly, when the NIC first looked at HS2, it didn't really look at HS2. That was already policy, as Heathrow was policy. We've never looked at that either. Existing policy is not in our remit, so we're trying to look that further forward into things which haven't yet been done. And in fact, we did recommend a change to HS2 in our Northern Connectivity Report, which was one of the first things we did, actually to look again at Sheffield and to look again at Liverpool. We asked HS2 to do that, to improve those cross connections in particular between all those other cities, not just the four major cities, but the Liverpools, the Sheffields, the Hulls of this world, and to make those connections look, look looked at differently. And HS2 did go and do some of that, not much, but also there's remained big issues around how that was in fact going to be provided and how the Eastern Leg was going to work with, uh, for example, moving the M1 in order to make it possible. So that's point one is we've looked at changing bits of HS2 to facilitate the existence of a networked broad 
broad set of high-speed connections or higher-speed connections at any rate between all the cities, all the major cities of the UK, not just the four ones. The second point, I think, is that is about um, financial constraint. And those financial constraints are real and therefore it seems seemed to us and again it comes down to let's get on with the bits that are obvious and the bits that we know that we need to do while we're still evolving and coming up with the detail of the bits which seem less clearly defined and certainly less clearly costed because the the, the core thing i did not want to do is uh, in spite of what Andrew thinks, I didn't want to get HS2 cancelled and the risk because of the burgeoning costs. And, you know, there are huge numbers of people who think this is fantastically expensive. We can't afford it. The um, what I didn't want to do is get the whole thing cancelled. And therefore, the important thing was to focus on those east west links, which are the weakest ones into the East Midlands uh, and, and, and up across into well, in, in Martin's new neck of the woods. Get those going while we're still working out the detail of some of the rest of it. I think that is still a practical way forward rather than saying never mind what it costs. Never mind whether we've got any cost control. We'll just we must say it's 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 uh, you got to sign up to something that people will not sign up to. So that's the practical politics part of it. Yeah, exactly. And the NIC has a fiscal remit which we have to live in. That's our that's our job. Thanks, Bridget. I'm going to move on that uh, debate. Fascinating to, uh, uh, to 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 have that. Thank you. And um, you're right, Bridget, to point to the the institutional and bureaucratic politics of some of this as as well, which on these huge decisions takes. Um, is incredibly important. Sue, um, I'm sorry not to come to you uh, sooner, but uh, the first question for the audience, and let's rattle through as many of these as possible with um, uh, with some short answers, but it's from Adam Tyndall, um, who uh, is making a point about the breadth of uh, any sort of transport strategy. How much of the problem is not so much a lack of a strategy, but a lack of associated other strategies and plans? So everything goes back to DFT, who see their job as overseeing the delivery of HS2 or whatever, um, while um, uh, actually making the most of a transport policy requires linking those uh, uh, transport interventions up with housing policy, trade policy. Uh, doesn't a, a meaningful or useful strategy need to be much broader than just transport? So. Thank you, uh, Alex. Yeah, I think I touched upon this at the beginning when it's transport's all about people, people in houses, businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It has got to be joined up. And I think there could be much, much value in looking at transportation in terms of portfolios of projects and initiatives to try and start to link them up and see the impact of one on another and to get the people talking together that are looking at the same geographical area but through completely different lenses. So so definitely that breadth thing is an issue, but we've, we've got the people who can do it. We've just got to make sure they don't work in silos. Brilliant. Thanks, Sue. And there are quite a few questions about the budget, the Treasury, getting the Treasury to invest in uh, this sort of stuff. The um, I can't find it now, but the air passenger duty um, cut. I mean, uh, Andrew, coming back to the sort of the, the politics of this and the recent budget and spending review, do you think that was a do you think it was a good budget for transport, a good budget for a transport strategy or not? I'm, I'm not clear what the transport plan is coming out of the budget. I mean, coming back to the things that Bridget and I and Martin have been discussing with relative to the Midlands and the North, there was a gaping black hole in the budget. The government announced yet again it's not publishing the integrated rail plan for the, the North, which is the thing that most of the policymakers were waiting for. And, they, and they're not publishing it. It's well known why they're not publishing it because they still can't agree it. 
there still isn't an agreement. You know, I think it was Martin who mentioned earlier Bradford. Bradford is a great northern city, one of these great northern cities which definitely requires a plan at the moment. The government can't even agree whether Bradford is or isn't going to be on the new east-west upgraded rail line that is going to be an absolutely central part of, uh, of the integrated rail plan. And there's uh, an absolutely massive battle going on, which is basically not being driven by transport strategy at all. It's been driven by a straightforward costs concern. And on the issue of costs, obviously government ultimately will decide what it wants. But I think it's a very big mistake when it comes to core infrastructure planning, strategic planning for the government's advisors simply to take as given before making any recommendations, the government's, uh, uh, the Treasury's own cost envelope. I, in effect, refused to do that when I was chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission. It was a constant tussle between me and the permanent secretary of the Treasury and the then chancellor, um, George Osborne was with me on it. He said that he couldn't get it past his officials if there was no spending envelope, but he wanted me to recommend what was the right thing in terms of integrated transport planning and the prioritisation of projects, which is the reason why to come back to this point, we did clearly a, a clear understanding at the beginning of the work of the National Infrastructure Commission was that the whole of HS2 would proceed. And this eastern leg of HS2 which is one of the most important pieces of national infrastructure planning taking place in the country. It's not true to say it was vague. It was, it is, it is planned, and indeed the uh, the people uh, doing the the detail planning have actually scoped and recommended detail, you know, within a few you know, a few yards of the actual routes of HS2 East. HS2 Limited, the company taking forward HS2, was actually drafting the parliamentary legislation to give the planning powers for all of that route, including the uh, improved route going through Sheffield that Bridget referred to until the plug was pulled by the Treasury, using as a, an excuse for doing so the report of the National Infrastructure Commission on this, which was itself generated by the Treasury telling it that it had to recommend proposals that locked off tens of billions of pounds off the cost. So you can go through the, the, the content of what's going on in this um, in, in this space marked national and regional transport policy, but you can't get away from the fact that it has been catastrophically handled in respect of the Midlands and the North over the last five years, including the very state bodies set up to recommend, recommend integrated planning, reversing themselves and their own advice in order to do the Treasury's bidding. Let's um thanks Andrew. Let's let's look a bit further north as well, or north and west. Um, we've had a couple of questions. Um, uh, one from Andrew Dorian, transport for from transport for North East, transport North East. Sorry, another document that's due for publication is the Union Connectivity Review. Does the panel think this will be effective? Another from uh, Peter Horston. Um, how should any English transport strategy fit into the Union Connectivity Review? Um, Peter's a colleague at the IFG. Martin, what do you what do you make of the uh, Union Connectivity Re Review from where you're sitting? Well, it, um, it's an important document because um, as, a, as a body, we have borders with uh, both Transport Scotland and Transport for Wales. And indeed, uh, we work very closely with both of those devolved administrations. So I think it's another illustration, going back to the point I made at the very, very start, Alex, where if you want to think about and have action on some of the key transport policy issues, you get the seven subnational transport bodies, Transport for London and the three devolved administrations in a room with the government. And that's a body of 12, that's 12 people around the table. I think we can actually think through and, and plot our way forward on some quite 
um, serious issues very quickly by building on. Um, I, I want to come back to this thing. We published a strategic transport plan in 2019. It's underwritten by one of the most comprehensive evidence bases available. We understand where all the planned development is for the next 20 or 30 years. We understand what our strategic rail and road networks are. We have a vision of how we can deliver the future. That vision actually defines and sets out what we expect of the rail network, what we expect of the road network. So you've got a strategic transport plan in TFN, which sets out how the transport needs to work as a system to unlock our economic potential, because people need to remember the transport plan is there to deliver the independent economic review. So this is about how do we unlock economic potential? We've got these mechanisms, we've got the plans. Comes back to Bridges points. What we're now focused on is how do we deliver that agreed plan and how do we work with government and its agencies to make that happen? That's what our Northern Transport Charter is all about. Thanks, Martin. Um, I'm going to come to Sue now. Um, uh, there's a question from Anonymous, uh, but it fits uh, it fits very well with lots of things that we've written about in the IFG. So I'm going to uh, ask it. Uh, uh, it's uh, whether our transport appraisal system is fit for developing a strategy because it's more based on value for money and benefit cost ratios rather than alignment against objectives. Uh, and that's certainly something we um, we've been thinking uh, about in terms of how uh, transport evidence is is used. And also, does it um, uh, uh, does it uh, ignore wider social goods or other sort of um, uh, 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 you know, beyond the uh, simple economics of benefit cost ratio ratios? So, um, Sue, uh, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, fantastic question. As as many of these are, we've got to look at social value. It's not all about benefit cost ratios. We've got to look at it in the whole, how we impact people's lives, how they live differently and what that long term value is against the short term disruption generally of providing new transportation systems. And I think we've got to get our KPIs around that. What does it look like? So a very small example on Tideway East, which is you know the new sewer under the Thames, there was a KPI to get 24% um, people working on it from ethnic minorities. And we actually achieved 45%, which is amazing. So that whole new cadre of people coming into the infrastructure industry and getting to know it and having jobs and having a future that in the East End of London, they probably wouldn't have done. So we've got to look at it in the round. It's not just we land and we build something or we just connect something, it's the people that make it happen, the people who are impacted, the people who work on the job and the people whose legacy that project or that connection is. And we've got to be much, much better at really trying to measure social value and actually projecting what the benefits of that social value will be. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Sue. And um, there's another question actually that relates to that and I'll, I'll, I'll get Sue's th thoughts and then, then Bridget's on it. Um, but it was about um, uh, if I can find it, uh, 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 gender disparities. So lots of talk about decarbonisation, you know, rightly, but um, conscious of gender disparities in transport use being uh, overlooked. Uh, how can we get non-environmental transport objectives to the table in the current climate? So I don't think there's anything you want to add on that before I come to Bridget. It's my second most important thing actually after social <laughs> social value. It's looking at how we actually move all sorts of people around. Now, whether that's using uh, robotic measurements, whether it's actually looking at how people travel. We did that analysis again on the Olympics, uh, the type of people who would be using different modes at what time of the day and to what intent. 
it can be done. It's just we're not very good at doing it. And if we are inclusive and we can actually have systems that allow anyone to use them, then my goodness, isn't that a better system for everyone? Yeah, great. Thanks, Sue. Bridget. A, a couple of things really on that one. One on the uh, how we measure benefit. It's so narrow. Uh, yeah, a thought to get Crossrail across the line on the basis that there were going to be wider benefits, which was somehow some little add-on that if you were really good, you 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 could use. And we've we've slowly got that, which is the economic side of things: jobs, job creation, extra incomes, better uh, better activity levels, all of those things. We've we've sort of slowly broadened that out in the standard model, but the standard model is still much more powerful than people think. Uh, and it's a real risk. And never mind thinking about social values. I mean, at least economics, you can you can sort of you talk about jobs and incomes. When we start to talk about behaviours, we start to talk about users, why people make a trip. I think we're still so far away, and there are huge differences between different groups, whether it's uh, ethnic minorities, gender, the purpose. And so, say, you know, you start off in the morning, you take your child to school drop them off, then you're going to work, then you've got a shopping to do, then you're doing this, then you're doing that. There's the, the whole way in which people use transport is incredibly variable and we don't pay any like anything like enough attention to behaviours. And without that, yeah, we, it comes back to engineers again. Thanks, Bridget. I know um, Martin wants to come in. I'm going to throw one final question to all of you uh, very briefly. Martin, you can come in uh, as a follow up to Bridget as well. But with transport, this is from Chris Hart. Uh, with transportation use technology requirements likely to change significantly over the next decade, how do we avoid a national transport strategy becoming irrelevant immediately after delivery? There's a little bit to some of the questions we did earlier, but I think that's quite a nice one to finish on. So, Martin, do you want to go first on that and anything to pick up from Bridget before we wrap up? So there's two things there very quickly, Alex. First of all, putting the user at the heart of it and, and just to reassure Bridget, the STBs increasingly are looking at much more diverse data sets so we understand why people are traveling and understand the, the diversity that there is. And secondly, um, at TFM, we're just about to conclude a piece of work where we're looking at the integrated program of benefits and assessments. So rather than looking at individual projects, what's the outcomes that we're going to get from delivering the program as a whole? And I think we've got to get better at looking at programs rather than individual projects, because that's where you get the outcomes. Cool. Thanks, Martin. Um, Andrew, how do we avoid a strategy becoming irrelevant immediately after delivery? Oh, you, well, you, at one point we haven't touched on, which I think is very important to this, is getting cross-party working because we have party government and that's inevitable in a democracy uh, and parties change. They change uh, locally, regionally and nationally. Getting cross-party agreement is very, very important to stable transport planning and uh, a, a large portion of projects that bite the dust are because governments change, ministers change, parties change. My hope for the National Infrastructure Commission when it was established was that it might be able to uh, act as a body, as a kind of catalyst for, for cross-party agreement and working. And I still hope that that might be the case, but as well as the uh, exigencies of party government, which uh, are inevitable in a, in a democracy, uh, we could also establish at least some basis for, for bringing parties together on agreement on what our national infrastructure priorities. It's a great point. Thanks, Andrew. It's that elixir of um, not taking the politics out of these issues because the politics is central to it, but um, finding some form of sustainable way of taking long term decisions. Um, Sue, uh, your, your thoughts on, on that very briefly before we wrap up and then Bridget. 
Sure. I mean, it's to make the strategy really concise, short and understandable. And when you deliver it, you deliver the execution plan and you also name the agile groups that are going to deliver it for you. So a very project management answer, but you've got to, you know, deliver, publish a strategy, get on with it and don't plan for anything more than five years ahead. Still with Andrew's list of uh, projects in it, uh, perhaps, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that one hanging. Bridget, your thoughts to finish off. You need a long term vision. You need a view of what it is you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. And everybody and, and the cross party point is important here. What, it, what is it you're trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? Inevitably, it tends to then come back to projects and programs and, and there's an inevitability about some of that. And then eventually it has to come back to the shorter term. You're hanging on to or trying to hang on to a long term vision is incredibly important and it's very difficult, especially with all the changes that we're seeing at the moment. What's working practice is going to be like in 30 years time? I haven't got a clue. But what I can say is what do I have to believe for particular things to be? What is it I'm trying to do? What do I have to believe for things to be worthwhile? And think about the broadest possible canvas and the biggest picture before you get bogged down in detail. We get bogged down in detail too quickly. Brilliant. Uh, good note to finish on. Thank you, Bridget. Uh, thank you to all of the panel for that. Um, lively, interesting discussion. I enjoyed the uh, Adonis Rosewell uh, um, uh, debates in particular, but all of your contributions were absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, thank you uh, to uh, all of you watching and for, to some really interesting questions. And also thank you to Costain, who uh, uh, Sue and colleagues have uh, helped us put on uh, this uh, discussion and this event today. Um, there's plenty more IFG stuff. Have a look at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Um, it's uh, uh, lots of events coming up, lots of um, uh, relevant reports to read on transport policy making and everything else thank you all very much have a good rest of the day